The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shaw. I'm the executive editor of The Homes Report and I will be your host for today's podcast. So on today's show, we have Paul Quigley, who is CEO of NewsWhip. So for those of you that are not familiar with NewsWhip, it's an online platform that tracks how content spreads online. And, you know, if you think about different applications for this for the PR industry, I mean, one would be you can you can either look at a particular piece of content that you've produced or a piece of news coverage or even a tweet and see what kind of traction and momentum it's getting online because NewsWhip, for instance, has a lot of historical data. You can compare that against um, other pieces of content and sort of predict whether something is going to catch fire or not. So I'm going to talk to Paul a little bit about this application and how reliable it is. I know the industry has heard a lot about predictive analytics over the years, um, so we'll talk about this in more detail. Um, Another thing that NewsWhip does is it tracks the proliferation and spread of fake news or misinformation. So that's another topic that Paul and I will cover on today's episode. And it's worth noting that we are also partnering with NewsWhip on a multi-part series on both of these topics, both predictive analytics and also fake news. So I will link to that series in the show notes and um, feel free to, to explore that if you want to go into a bit more detail on these subjects. And in the meantime, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Artie. Here we are. We are in, a, in New York in July, and there is a downpour outside. Um, but I'm from San Francisco, and you're, a, you're based, are you in London or are you in Ireland? Ireland, so I did bring the weather. Yeah, you can, yes, you there, can blame me. Exactly. There we go. So um, both of us are out of, out of our element. So we wanted to talk today about predictive analytics. And as many of our listeners may know, we have been doing a series on the topic of predictive analytics in partnership with NewsWhip. And um, I guess this would be a good time to just give our readers kind of a primer around what NewsWhip is. Our readers, I mean listeners. Very simply, what we do is we monitor and predict engagement with news and other content. So every time a news story is published on any website, major or minor, um, a new Facebook post appears on a public figure's page, or even um, new things start appearing on, on, on Pinterest, we monitor how much engagement each one of those objects is getting. And we do that for millions of stories each day. You can see what different trends and interests are emerging. Um, and we came, we developed this technology originally for the news industry. So someone like a CNN or a New York Times knows where audience interest is moving and that can inform um, which stories are covered, what angles you take on stories and uh, how you allocate your resources through the day. And what we saw was this was tremendously useful as well in the area of PR for creating Uh, for understanding what stories are emerging, whether it's for a crisis or issue monitoring, um, but also for opportunities and for opportunities to engage with the story in the right way that's resonating. Um, Because there's a lot of stories published each day, but we want to say which ones matter. So, so, you know, I'm just curious, when when did you all open up the platform to brands um, or, you know, to PR professionals and not just to the news? We, probably about three or four years ago, we got our very first users. uh, Steve Rebell at Edelman was a big initial advocate. He said, this is Moneyball for media. Uh, and we thought that was really cool and understood that it was a very new opening in, in a market where we'd like to go and work with people. And there's been a big 
Uh, MasterCard were using us from very, on, very early on as well because um, they've got a very strong global newsroom monitoring a bunch of different issues globally like payment security and financial inclusion. And we, in the last couple of years, when there's been a big increase in momentum around issues and crisis, environmental, political, social, all of these things, we're seeing a kind of big intake and interest. So we're redesigning our whole platform around supporting um, PR workflow. Hmm. So one of the reasons I'm asking about that is, um, as, as our, um, as I referenced the series that we that we're doing in partnership with you all, the first, the part one, which again, uh, listeners, I will um, have links to to the series in in the show notes. Uh, the, it asked the question: Is the promise of uh, predictive analytics finally being fulfilled? Because about ten years ago, I would say maybe 2009, 2010, right? We, I felt like that was all we were hearing about big data, and it was going mm-hmm. to completely change the way that we did our jobs. And that seemed to never deliver on the hype um, from that era. And it seems like now that the, the idea of predictive, predictive analytics is being revisited um, only in a different way. So I'm just curious if you followed this evolution and why things didn't pan out as initially thought originally. It sounds like there was you know, a big hype around the possibilities of we've got a lot of data, so can we predict the future? And there's ways in which you can, and, ways, and it's a bit easier, and ways in which it's harder. And... We've, got, we've developed a way, because we've monitored billions of news stories, we can see within 30 minutes or sooner after a story is published what pattern of engagement with it indicates how big it will become. And within a kind of a, a confidence range, we can predict how big it will become, and we keep updating that number again and again. And because that's relying on mathematical algorithms and it's relying on laws of big numbers from lots of stories that have got engagement in the past, it can be very accurate. What's hard to say is, you know, are brownies going to be bigger or smaller in two years? And some of these bigger social trends can be a little bit, a little bit more niggly to, to predict. But on a day-to-day and story level, it's, it's very possible. So it seems like short-term predictions um, yep. on something that's just catching fire and figuring out whether that's actually going to fizzle out or whether it's going to just explode, yep. that's, that's where we're at right now. And then there's the templates that maybe you can apply for some of the more standard crises like, that a brand might face, like say, okay, we're withdrawing our advertising from the Tucker Carson show. Let's look at engagement and conservative media when the last time this blew up and you know, particular conservative media would cover that and say this is an outrage. Does it tend to bleed into other mainstream media or is it more of a localized explosion when that happens? So you can maybe by looking at previous events and we store all that data so people can look back at previous events, you can kind of gauge whether this is, you know, 8.0 on the Richter scale or or a 5 on the Richter scale. Right. And, you know, I'm I'm glad you referenced crises because um, part two of the series actually addresses that head on and it primarily looks at crises but also looks at like how you can use it um, how brands can use it to decide if they want to step into a social issue or not and I'm curious if you want to walk us through some examples um, and again listeners um, in, in the piece which I'll link to Marshall Manson um, at Brunswick gives a beautiful example of how mm-hmm. they how they used I think that the platform for a specific crisis they had but do you want to do you want to kind of walk us through an example of how you've seen it used in a crisis yeah I think uh Marshall gave a very good example where, well, say sometimes there's a news event that you know is coming, and it might be a report issued by a government agency, and within the first hour or hour and a half of that report being published, you want to know, well, how, how, how many different outlets are picking it up, and how much engagement is it getting on those outlets? So to do that, you need to be able to put in simple search terms, get all the 
content and responsive content in one place where you can quickly click out and see what's being shared on social and how fast it's moving. And then you can respond um, with a kind of data-informed approach. And if you don't have that data, then the CEO might say, oh, we need to go out and defend ourselves, but if it's only published on two publications and it's in the bottom percentile, you know, at the bottom 40% of their stories that day, maybe you just want to write out the storm and not issue a statement so there's no day two story. And we've seen that pattern used a few times where a situation happens and executives want to make a statement and their advisors are a little bit more hesitant because they know that can add fuel to the fire. And the data that shows that a story has already run its course and people aren't engaging or sharing with it anymore is used by a communications advisor to talk someone off the ledge. So I, you, I think there was also um, kind of the, the, the example you referenced kind of um, goes into historical benchmarking mm-hmm. and being able to look at that and saying, okay, typically when, you know, what kind of noise should we expect? What kind of noise, like you said, yep. and will let us know this is going to be a big event or, or not. Um, Chris Gee from Finsbury is also quoted in the piece, and, and he was kind of warning people against conflating historical benchmarking with predictive analytics. And I'm mm-hmm. curious if you wanted to give your take on, you know, how is doing that different than what you would consider just be standard historical benchmarking? Yeah, so Chris had the great example of using um, our, our predictive analytics as instead of saying it might rain this afternoon to say that the percentage chance of rain is 75% between 4pm and 6pm. And that can be very accurate. I think when when he's talking about historical benchmarking, it's that every situation is different and uh, you need some ways of, of benchmarking. And let me think, I mean, one thing that can be important is to look at all of the output of a publication and say, is this one of the more engaged or less engaged stories? And previously, when this story was covered, was it you know, the biggest story in the New York Times that day or was it further down in the ranking uh, of the stories in the news that day? So I think you know, there is actually good things you can do with benchmarking, but it's a little bit more work and you need to dig in and maybe an analyst and a bit more thinking needs to be involved. That's what we actually want to eat into our product. We want to say, this looks like a you know, bad behavior by a member of, you know, your front of house staff in an airline, or this looks like um, you've been embroiled in a certain category of, of a crisis, and make it very quickly and have put it quickly at your fingertips to see some previous benchmarks and issues that have happened before. One of the other quotes that I love from the story, and this came from, I think, Dan Maisie, who was um, most recently at Reebok, mm-hmm. um, we can justify any decision under the comfy shield of data. And... Are, are you cognizant of someone using the platform Newswhip just to justify any decision? And, and is there a way that it doesn't turn into just vanity metrics? Uh, well, Dan, Dan's been a fantastic advocate of us for years, and they've been using us in the, in the Reebok brand newsroom. And they would have been looking at issues um, and, and kind of jumping onto stories um, in a way, they had a predefined area of, of areas of interest, including women's rights. And when uh, Mitch McConnell famously tried to shut down uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren from speaking, that's when Reebok kicked into action with the Nevertheless She Persisted campaign. And they saw in Newsweek that the story was going to be really big. They did the historical analysis to see who's been writing about the Women's March and who might be interested in covering the story if we create a T-shirt um, of Nevertheless She Persisted and we make the donations from the proceeds of that T-shirt to the Women's March. So they did both the media planning and the decision-making in a very data-informed way from our platform. 
Um, but what Dan has been critical of is that there's always enough data to justify anything. Mm -hmm. And judgment needs to be applied. Like, I guess data is dumb. You have to ask it the right mm -hmm. question. And you have to apply it in the right way. So it's... I think there can be a comfy shield of data. You'll find some data points somewhere. So instead, you need to say, how are we using this? Why are we using it? Um, and often the data will prove you wrong, and you need to be okay with being wrong. Like maybe the, right, the writer you thought of contacting isn't the most viral writer in this topic, and you should actually go to a more niche publication. And that's maybe the mindset change. I used to be a lawyer before I started NewsWhip, hmm. and lawyers are never allowed to be wrong. You know, you've always got to, and you're, you always hedge everything and, and carefully write your analysis. You can't have a comma in the wrong place. And one of the things about moving more into data and analytics is you need to be able to say, well, we've got a high confidence level with this. And you're kind of doing science. And sometimes you have a theory, and then the data says you're wrong. And you need to be fine with that and have an attitude of being okay with that. And that's been a, a journey for me, and I think a kind of journey that maybe we'll see happening as data is used in disciplined ways in PR. I, I think that's an excellent point, the being okay with being wrong, and yeah. I think that's something that the PR industry probably needs to come to terms with a little bit. Um, you know, you touched on, you know, with the, with the um, Elizabeth Warren and McConnell example, um, purpose washing or woke washing has emerged from Cannes this year, and how do you think someone could use the Newswhip platform to avoid falling into that trap. And I think there's going to be more scrutiny around purpose. There was already, you know, purpose fatigue. And as we go into 2020, we're about to go into an election year in the U.S. anyway, and there will be quite a bit of scrutiny, I think, on mm -hmm. brands. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, I'm just curious as to how you can use the platform in that capacity. So what, what the platform is doing is quantifying engagement with, with, with media. And I suppose the danger of woke washing is the CEO and some of the C-suite go on a retreat and they come back and they say, hey, we're all about labor rights and we're going to talk about this a lot. And maybe in the outside world, outside of the people who weren't on that retreat, that doesn't feel very authentic. And a good way of testing whether something is authentic is to say, well, let's see what media is being shared around this topic. Is there any existing media engagement with this brand and this topic of labor rights. And this there's a real-world example here of an agency that was advising a tech company that had an existing very strong purpose around environmentalism but wanted to expand into the kind of maybe thornier issue of labor rights. And what the agency advising them did was they used our, our platform to say, well, what kind of content generally around labor rights gets engagement? It's a West Coast company. What content in California tends to get engagement? What content about this brand, and also mentioning all of the terms and concepts around labor rights, tends to get engagement? And they saw, you know, with labor rights, the positive stories tend to be uh, where a company that employs a lot of people across America raises their above the minimum wage, their, their pay. Uh, a lot of the negative stories are around the cost of living in the major metropolitan areas. And there didn't seem to be a lot of room, like a narrative to attach themselves to that was going to turn out positive. And there's a danger of the whole thing appearing inauthentic based on what was already out there. Like, you may feel in the C-suite in your brand that, hey, we really authentically believe in this thing, but if the outside world doesn't think, doesn't, doesn't feel right, you're better off not bothering or maybe starting to build your way there without a big announcement. Right. So speaking of purpose, I'm thinking now of how, um, how we divisive social media is these days and mm -hmm. how it's turned into an echo chamber. And there are things that I've heard 
are a big deal, for instance, the Starbucks holiday cups. And there is no indication on, for, on for instance, on my social media yeah. that anyone is outraged by this, but apparently there is some echo chamber in which people are. Um, or there are things that I will see on my social media feeds that I think it's the biggest deal. And I'm like, this is all anyone's talking about. But I look, when I step, take a step back and look at the broader media landscape, it's not as big of a deal. So how do you navigate, like when you're looking at the platform, looking at the data of like, yeah, this is blowing up, but it's blowing up within a very specific sect. And mm -hmm. is this a sect that A, matters for, for my brand? It, or B, is this, will, will this probably not leave this echo chamber? It's like... We're in the echo chamber yeah. right now, right? Yes, we are. We are indeed. <laughs> yes, I know. It's like it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be kind of ironic, but yes, yeah, we are in the echo chamber. Literally, that's and, the name of the podcast. And anyone who's listening to this is in this tiny group of very media literate mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. who have this great understanding of the landscape and who probably go beyond just you know scrolling through a couple of social platforms and some TV to get their news. Like mm -hmm. this is. And I think what people in this bubble don't appreciate is what's outside of that bubble. Mm -hmm. um, and because we monitor overall population-wide engagement with everything for every publication, we get to see the dirty truth of what's actually getting engagement out there. Um, I think this really, everyone realized there was a parallel universe that they was not in their news feeds at the end, uh, with the 2016 election. Um, because suddenly you say, okay, who, who are all these conservative websites getting millions of engagement in the content that I've never heard of. And that's a huge phenomenon that's continued over the last four years. Um, social media algorithms have kept people effectively in the bubbles and people opt into their bubbles. Um, it's quite painful to have your views challenged and to have, you know, if you um, are for gun, uh, what would you say, gun protection or... Um, gun control. Gun control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you get a load of Second Amendment you know, macho memes in your feed, you're not going to log back in and the algorithms are not going to serve you that kind of content. Um, but what you need to do then in order to move the biases from your analysis to stand back and say, well, let's look at what all the different publications are saying. And an interesting thing came up just now. We're doing a partnership with Axios on the uh, 2020 elections. And right now we're monitoring engagement with content on all, I think, 20 of the Democratic candidates. And uh, Axios looked at our data to say, well, which publications are actually getting the most engagement with content about the Democratic uh, debate that just happened? And the most engaged publication was Breitbart. Wow. And no one, none of the, no one, first of all, who works at the New York Times probably reads that. No one who works in, a lot of people probably who work in PR would break a particular way politically too. And they're not aware that there's a whole parallel universe that kind of represents half of America that is reading very different narratives. Um, and we were really surprised to see that as well. But they're covering and they're getting a lot of engagement with their coverage um, among conservatives who are paying attention to the Democratic uh, primaries. So we have to wrap up soon, and I am, of course, going to wrap up with a very big question. Um, so I know you all are supporting uh, some misinformation projects around misinformation and yep. fake news, and especially as we go into 2020. Can you give our listeners just sort of a summary of, in terms of what's happening on that front? Yeah. Oh, well, the, the, the quality of information has cleaned up a good bit since 2016. Mm -hmm. So immediately after the 2016 election, uh, we started supporting a bunch of... Um, initiatives and non-profits that were launched, like the first draft news initiative, that were designed in the run-up to elections to have journalists keeping an eye out for any emerging fake news stories. And because we can monitor engagement, we can see if a story is cracking up at a certain velocity. 
like a, st a false story saying Emmanuel Macron has got a Swiss bank account, uh, starts getting a thousand engagements per hour, then journalists know to, that they need to pop a pin into that and report that it isn't uh, the case at all. Uh, so we've been report supporting those initiatives. The platforms have started de-boosting and demonetizing and removing the reasons for financial incentives. But the problem of people opting into different bubbles still persists. And even without publishing all-out fake things, little bits of truth uh, with a lot of bias attached can go very viral when they confirm people's existing worldviews and identities. What I'm really interested in is when you marry our data, which shows the stories people are engaging with, with the kind of psychological explanations for why you get really thorough kind of picture of what's going on. And the picture is still pretty scary. People are very tribal. They like to have their identities and their beliefs confirmed. And they opt into narratives that, that do that and share those narratives. Yeah. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much time reporters have to spend on debunking fake news that catches fire. Um, but to your point, it's the problem's not going away. People are still seeking out new sources, like you said, that confirm mm -hmm. um, their own biases. Well, Paul, this was a fantastic conversation, and there's so much that we didn't even get to touch on, so I'm sure we'll have you back here. Let's do that. I'd love to. <laughs> Thanks, Hardy. Thanks, Paul. And that concludes another episode of The Echo Chamber. Thank you to our guest, Paul Quigley. Thank you to our producers, marketeers. And we will be back soon with another episode. been listening to the echo chamber brought to you by the homes report and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketeers 